and so I thought I was grieving him, but I wasn't really ready to go there. I couldn't couldn't deal with the depth of pain. So what happened was I pushed the grief underground and my life went forward, but the grief stayed there. You're listening to Scars We Share. I'm your host, Kayleen. I just want to express how grateful I am for this podcast and you wonderful people listening in. Holding space for you, and honestly myself, is such an honor. Thank you to all of the amazing guests I've had on the show, and thank you, fantastic listeners, for holding space for these people and their stories. It means the world to me. For this episode, I had Marilyn Crete. Seriously, every person who comes on this show just blows me away, and she is no exception. She talks about her experience around running away from home, being a ward of the province, and being forced to grow up very quickly. It's a beautiful story. Here's Marilyn. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Kayleen. I'm glad to be here. Um, My name is Marilyn Crete, K-R-I-E-T-E, and um, I live in Canada. I'm Canadian by birth, but I've lived um, in four continents and 16 cities around the world so far in my life. Wow. Uh, had kind of a restless, <laughs> restless spirit, restless soul, and had a lot of adventures. So um, in this stage of my life, I've become a memoirist, and I've just had my first memoir published um, in March through Lucid House Publishing. It's called Paradise Road, a memoir, and it basically recounts the first um, 24 years of my life. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> yeah. that's, that's where that's at. So That's so exciting. Yeah. How has it like? How has it been? Having well, it's been exciting, but also a little bit anticlimactic because, you know, the whole time I was writing is spent. You know, writing obviously is a book takes several years of in the yeah. process of writing and editing and finding a publisher and whatever. And I always envisioned a, this amazing live book launch and all my friends and colleagues and everybody being there and being able to share, you know, share that victory with my friends. And of course, that wasn't able to happen with. Um, all of our lockdown so that's been a little disappointing but it's great to just have my story out there and to hear how much it's resonating with um readers everywhere so yeah so that part I can't complain yeah yeah. that is super exciting that that must be just frustrating not being able to have this like big celebration with all of your friends and family like that would be so hard yeah and yeah Yeah. this pandemic has touched so many people in so many different ways. And sure. it's just, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Good thing yeah. about it is it has people reading more, I think. So yeah. that's good. And it's, yeah, it's for authors, it's, it's good that way. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that, but it's true. I have done a little bit more reading more. <laughs> we have our children, you know, inside a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's been taking up a lot of our time. Yeah. But I do know that a lot of people have been asking for more book recommendations the past year mm-hmm. because they are like, I need something while I'm stuck at home. So that's yeah. true. That's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. Well, let me ask you what physical scar you're going to tell us about today. Well, I have a couple scars on my face. And one of them is interesting because it's it's kind of a, a scar that got added on to the first, first time I scarred it, I was like, I think about three years old and Apparently I was dancing on a table and fell and, and cracked cracked open my chin. So I had oh. stitches from that. I don't remember it, but I but the scar was, you know, scars there. And then um not that many, I guess when I was about um 
20, I was on a, a really fast bike ride out in the country and this dog started chasing me and I tried to outcycle it and then it ran in front of my tires and sent me flying over my handlebars and I landed on my chin and um, added to that scar. So now it went, from, it went from a little grin to a big grin. Um, yeah, so that's the scar on my face. So. Oh my goodness, yeah. that's so crazy. Age, but yeah, it's funny to, to, to uh, add to it, an existing scar. But, yeah, so. It's actually really funny that you bring that up. My husband actually has two scars that like overlap on his chin. Is that because right? Of, like two different things, but it's like yeah. overlapping on his chin, but he had yeah. stitches in both times. Yeah, it's easy to land on our chins when we're thrown in the air. Yes. Oh my gosh, <laughs> what happened with the dog? Um, you know, I don't, I think I just remember him kind of limping off, but I was just so, I was kind of dramatized and I was lying in shock at the side of the road and bleeding and, um, and I remember just cars going by and nobody would stop. And so that's my memory of the day was just kind of this feeling really kind of injured and alone by the side of the road. Somebody eventually stopped and, and I you know got to where I was going, but, um, yeah, I don't know what happened to the dog. Oh, I wasn't right. feeling very sympathetic to the towards the dog. Oh, I wouldn't either. <laughs> So, yeah. hopefully oh, he lived yeah. yeah yeah that is just crazy yeah yeah so well let's switch into the internal scar so we've got plenty of time on that what internal scar are you willing to talk about okay well um this scar the one that I, I you know I probably didn't realize how much I was scarred in this way um early in life well I should have but I think I was in denial a lot but basically I just I had a very difficult relationship with my mother from my earliest memory of her and um, to the point where I ran away from home when I was 14 and um, just to get away from her and ended up um, twice being caught, picked up and put in juvie and then finally ended up being put into a girl's home but run by Catholic nuns. And when I was there, um, the social workers and the counselors tried to reconcile me with my mother, but it, it just wasn't happening because they put her in a room, put us in a room together, and she would just go off on these tirades after me and, and rant and rave, and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And after a few of those sessions, the the social workers just said, you know what, there's we see why you ran away. There's no point. And so um, they actually went to court and made me a ward of the province, and um, ended up not seeing my parents for about six years, and then. Um, when I was about in my early 20s, I reached out and made contact with them and um, reconciled on the surface. But my mother was never really willing to revisit the past. And she's never apologized for anything. And she's, yeah, she's never hinted at all that she might have had a part in my, um, my behavior. She always kind of blamed me for being rebellious and, you know, wanting things my way or whatever. So we kind of moved forward from that. And then, um, not not long after that, um, I was living in Toronto and I got engaged and brought my my uh, fiance home to meet my parents and my mom decided that she just didn't like him from the get go and they ended up um, boycotting my wedding and so it's just kind of been a series of things where I've on the surface I've really tried to maintain a relationship and I've wanted that relationship with my family and I've just kind of had to work around her um, and then of course it's one of those things, I think, when you become a parent yourself, you start to 
look back at your own, how you were parented and see things even more clearly. And I think then I started realizing, wow, there's, you know, it was pretty messed up how she felt and towards me and treated me. And, and then she sort of extended that behavior towards my own kids who are both adopted. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, it was just, it's been a rocky road with her. And um, yeah, long story short, she ended up getting Alzheimer's um, late in her life. And honestly, the very best visit I ever had with her was when she was in the throes of Alzheimer's, had no idea who I was. And she was, Alzheimer's kind of changed her into this really childlike, sweet little person that I'd never known before. And um, yeah, so it was like, I remember commenting to my brother after we spent that time with her. I said, this is the first time I've been around my mom and I've been totally relaxed. I haven't had my guard up wondering what's she going to say or what's going to happen or, you know, how am I going to protect myself? Um, so yeah, that was kind of our last visit. And then, um, she passed away last September. Wow. So that chapter's closed. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh. So there's kind of layers of scars. There's, you know, the pain of my own childhood and how it affected my life going forward. Cause obviously going into the girl's home and, um, this is the story, a lot of the story I tell in my memoir. Um, they ended up releasing me when I was 16 and, and I was living on my own and it affected my education. I didn't go back to school and, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of kind of repercussions from that. Um, but I think also I, you know, I, I came to mourn almost, almost as much, if not more, um, the fact that she just wasn't a, a good grandmother to my children either. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I had this fantasy of having a mother that if, when I had issues with my kids, I could go talk to my mom about it. And we never had that at all. Yeah. And in fact, I felt like I had to, if there were problems with my children, I had to hide them because that would just add to her um, criticism of them. And, you know, so, yeah, yeah so it's been, it's been painful. Um, but I know I'm not alone. I know lots of other people have similar histories with their parents, but yeah, yeah, no, but it's so hard having issues with your parents. Cause you know, your parents are supposed to be the people who love you most mm-hmm. and who are always there on your side, ready to support you and help you in everything that you have right. going on. They're supposed to be the people who have unconditional love for right. you. Right. And yeah. then when they fall short on that, it's just painful. Yeah. Like there's really no other way to talk about it. It's just painful when the people that you expect to be there the most just can't be there for you. Right. Right. Yeah. In fact, she was, she was the opposite of everything you said a parent should be, you know, she was not supportive and not, yeah, not protective and um, highly critical and yeah. So yeah. And she had such a strong personality. She was so dominating that um, my dad couldn't stand up to her either. So he was just kind of the silent bystander. And, um, you know, again, looking back, I see lots of ways where he, he should have come, you know, he should have come to bat for me, but but didn't or couldn't or wouldn't. Um, so, yeah. So it's yeah. Kind, of, kind of a sad story, but I... You know, <laughs> yeah, I got you through it. Best. Yeah, you do the best with what you have. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. I get that for sure. Um, I, I just kind of want to share this and I want to see if you had any similar things happen with you. Um, 
So there have been multiple occasions where I really could have used a mother's help. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had my gallbladder removed two months after I had my first child. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I had to have a major surgery in 2016 and, you know, I've had three children. Like there've been times when like, I really, really needed that mother figure to step in right. and just, you know, take over things. Right. And I never had that. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't have that kind of relationship with my mom Yeah, and we also live in a small apartment. So it, it is more inconvenient for her to come stay with us mm-hmm. because we'd have to borrow an air mattress so that she could sleep on the floor in the living room or something right. like that. Right. Yeah. It's not an easy thing, but she didn't even try. Yeah. yeah. And I've like, I've gotten to the point where I just hardly even ask for their help anymore. Like I very, very rarely ask for their help. And then when I do, I just expect it to never happen. Yeah. And it's taken me a long time to get to that point of just being like, well, I'm just not even going to ask for help because I don't think it's going to be there. Yeah. And the few times that I do ask for help, I fully expect a no. So that way I'm not let down when it it doesn't work out. Yeah. But I don't know if you had the same thing where sometimes like, especially at the beginning, that was just really hurtful Mm -hmm. and so hard because I saw all of my friends having their mothers come to help when they had babies and like fawning over their moms being like, we couldn't have made it this past week without my mother here and all of these things. And I'm like, well, I want that. Yeah. And there was just like this huge sense of loss there. I don't know. Did you experience similar things? Well, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that you have gone through that and, and still still going through that. Um, yeah, for me, well, we were geographically separated. Like, I was living far away. I was living in Africa and India and in the States. Um, and so when I adopted both my kids, uh, we weren't anywhere even near my parents, so there wasn't even a question of asking them to help. But, um, but when I did bring my daughter to meet um, my parents for the first time, we went to visit them at their cabin and we got, we got, we adopted my daughter when she was um, 16 months old mm-hmm. and went to the cabin when she was just about, I don't know, maybe just a little over two, two and a half. And she was a very cute little girl. And we were there for about a week and my mother never once touched her, hugged her, reached out to her, tried to pick her up. Like she just was totally hands off. And um, mm-hmm. that was pretty crushing. Yeah. Do yeah. that. like that it's just not normal <laughs> you know? yeah, I walk down the street with my daughter with strangers who want to come up and touch her and, and talk to her right it's like okay you're not responding like like a normal person let alone like a, a grandmother should yeah so yeah. oh that would be really hard yeah that'd yeah. be so difficult because we like again we have these images in our mind you know there's all these stories and commercials and movies like all of these things where you know grandma she's in the kitchen baking with the kids she's giving them candy when they shouldn't and they're but they're out there doing things with the grandkids and so like the grandkids love going to grandma's house right that would be so heartbreaking yeah yeah to just yeah not even have her interact with your child that would be really hard yeah and then, and, and then I guess I kind of relate to what you said about, you know, just lowering expectations because for, I think for, for quite a few years, I 
because we go such long periods of, um, between visits, like sometimes I wouldn't see them for two years or so because of the distance and traveling and whatever. And we, I should add too that we were always the ones that had to travel to them. Like they never once made a trip to visit us anywhere that we lived. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, when, when, when I, I'd have those couple of years in between visits and I start to fantasize again and think, oh, you know, I, I kind of imagine it would go differently the next time, which is totally unrealistic, but that's how our minds sometimes work. Right. Yep. And um, yeah. And then I'd just be devastated again when it would go just as badly, if not worse as the previous time. And I, I finally just had to reach a point, like you said, where you just don't, don't expect anything, expect zero and um, you know, be surprised if I get, you know, a 10% response or whatever. Um that's kind of how I learned to, to, to deal with it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But again, it's, it's, you know, it's sad when you have to even admit that you just expect zero from your, from your mother. Yeah. Um, it, it's a painful place to get to. Yeah. Like yeah. it just is, it just yeah. is a difficult place to get to. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, is your dad still alive or did he pass away as well? Um, he's still alive. Um, and I always, I guess I'll, all of us kids always hoped that she would go sooner rather than later so that he would have some peaceful years without her. But he's like turning 90 next month. Wow. And um, he slowed down quite a bit. And um, yeah, in fact, I, I just, he's just finished reading my memoir in the last couple of weeks. And um, I was really, I, I kind of shared with him what was in it and hinted that he might want to read it. And he didn't really say yes. Yeah. So it was published, and then my brother brought a book book over to him, um, and he has been reading it. But um, I think he's just a little too old now to kind of get it. And I think his way of dealing with things was to sort of be in denial a lot. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so he's expressed some surprise at how bad I, you know, how badly I, things were according, to, you know, to me. Like he kind of didn't mm -hmm. didn't want to see it. Um, yeah. So yeah. So he's still alive. I don't know. I don't know for much longer, but. Yeah. Yeah. Has it, have you been able to have a little bit more of a relationship with him? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's actually been really nice because, um, we, we meet up at the family cabin and for the time the cabin was ever, like my parents built it years ago, 40 some years ago. And from the time they built it, it was always my mother's cabin and she controlled everything about it and controlled the, ah. you know, there are tons of rules and regulations and lots of, harsh incidents and things like that so we we would love to go there to see each other but it was always like again working around my mother yeah. and her energy and um the last few years since she has alzheimer's we were able to go out there without her and completely transformed um physically we transformed the cabin like we started to cl clear the clutter out and cleared all the old stuff that she had kicking around and i mean she was so she had so many rules she had rules about even pulling weeds or clearing trees so the place was like haunted house like it was so overgrown and closed in and we've gone in there and pulled out trees and hacked down you know the, the underbrush and yeah. brought in the sunlight literally and um broken all the cabin rules that she had in place <laughs> just like okay now everybody's a free-for-all you can eat whenever you want you can drink whatever you want whenever you want um and that's been really nice and my dad has really enjoyed being out there with us like that because it's completely like i said it's a completely new experience um, more the way a cabin, you know, cabin experience should be where people go there to relax and um, lessen the rules, not add to them. Yes. Yeah. So. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah. Uh, so, so much of what you're saying is actually reminding me of my father-in-law. 
Is that right? Yeah. So my, um, my father-in-law actually has a personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Right. So, you know, with OCD, with obsessive, yeah. with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, yeah. Yeah. Um, you kind of realize that you have a problem. Like you not, I don't even want to call it a problem, but like you realize that you see things differently than other people. Right. And so there are steps that you can, you know, there are things that you can do to try to help you cope in certain situations. Right. Well, he doesn't think that there's anything wrong. Like his brain is put together in such a way that he thinks that everyone else is wrong. Yeah. And he's right. Sounds like my mother. (laughs) In like everything. Yeah. yeah. And so he like comes up with these rules that he doesn't tell anyone and the rules can change. Like he, there can be an established rule and then suddenly the rule is different within a matter of minutes. Really? And so like, it's, it's really hard to keep up with him sometimes and it's very difficult to be around him sometimes Uh, but anyway just what you were saying I'm like wow I actually can like my father-in-law I can totally relate to some of that with my father-in-law and yeah it's interesting what you just get used to and then when you take it away and you have this freedom it's just it's it's nice yeah yeah yeah, sounds sounds similar. Except my mother's rules never changed. Like she would never bend a rule or change. Like they were just set in stone. And um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. But she she was. I, I'd never in my life heard my mother apologize to anyone for anything. Like she's she always she was always right, and mm-hmm. she was always the authority. And yeah, so and yeah. that's hard. Yeah. That's really hard because especially I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I try, I try really hard to speak very kindly yeah. and like without judgment or anything, yeah, yeah. but it's really hard when you know that someone else is in the wrong mm-hmm. and they refuse to see that or accept it or apologize for any wrongdoing. Yeah. It's yeah. so hard. Yeah. And yeah, that's painful. Being able to apologize, I think, is something that is beautiful that everyone needs to be able to work at. Yeah. Because we all do things, whether we mean to or not, we all do things to hurt other people. Mm -hmm. And being able to apologize is, I think, one of the most important things that we can learn as human beings. Yeah, you're right. So to have a parent who just won't apologize, like seriously once again like I'm just thinking of my father-in-law like he same thing like no one has really ever heard him apologize much because he just yeah that's not what he does yeah yeah and that's hard to come to that's really hard to come to especially when you have been hurt drastically especially you like leaving at 14 and then having people actually see like try to get you back together and be like okay no we realize like do you have, yeah okay yeah. <laughs> there was a reason you need, to, you need to be away from this person <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 that was validating to me I guess at least that that was one good thing about the experience is at least other people got to see what I was yeah. dealing with in that context so that helped me kind of realize that I wasn't you know that I, my, my perception of, of the relationship was pretty accurate yeah so 
Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Being validated is actually just, it's so nice mm. when it's like, oh, okay, no, I'm not just being ridiculous. Like yeah. I am, there is a reason I am feeling this way or whatever. Yeah. Like yeah. it's so important to have that. Yeah. Sure. So I, I want to ask, you said that you did officially become a ward of the province. Mm. So what was that like? Well, I know that's a really big question. Well, it, you know, it, 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 the, so what happened is I was, I was in the girls home for about uh, just under two years. And um, so through grade 10 and grade 11. And then um, when we went, to, they basically, they just told me one day, okay, we're going to, we're going to court to kind of settle this out with your parents. And because um, my, my mother was saying that she wanted to have me come home. And I knew that wasn't true. I knew she didn't want me back, but it was a pride issue for her. That, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that, she could be considered an unfit parent, I guess. So because my parents were both, my, my mother had been a school teacher before she got married and my dad was a school principal and they were, you know, on the outside, it looked like they were pretty good people. Right. So, yeah. So we went to family court and I hadn't seen them in person for probably a year before that day. And just remember seeing them kind of across the room and they both looked like they'd aged, you know, 10 years since I'd last seen them. And yeah, it was settled out pretty quickly. And then and, you know, we both walked out of the room and that was it. And then shortly after that, I was, you know, they, the, the girls home re- released me and had me, you know, just, I was, I just got a job and started working and lived on my own. And that part of the story, like, I guess it wasn't until I was writing my memoir, I kind of really examined some of that too and thought, and it, it kind of really struck me that, you know, nobody, after they released me, nobody ever followed up with me. Like nobody checked wow. in to see, because I, I promised them I'm going to finish high school. I'll do, um, I'll do correspondence classes and I'll, I'll get it done. And I did one correspondence class and finished one course, I think. And then I just got, so I, I really loved working. Like I, I was bored in school. And I just loved working and being an, an adult and independent, whatever. And, um, and I was a hippie at that time. So, you know, having, having an education and big plans didn't seem important to me at that time. Mm-hmm. So that part, I look back and think, you know, somebody should have been there um, yeah. checking in on me and giving me a little push in the right direction and encouraging me to, you know, go to university or whatever. Um, but that never happened. So, yeah, they just kind of washed their hands clean of me. So, wow. Yeah. yeah so, oh, that, that's so interesting. And I like, I know that you're in Canada and I'm in the United States, yeah. but. I actually do see like some similarities there where it's like this because you were still a child. Yeah. Yeah. But you're still a child at that age. And so having a child just basically put out and being like, okay, now go, go fend for yourself. Yeah. Without any extra help, any oversight, like that would be so hard. And I like, I think it's a problem in the United States as well, where it's like, no, you need, like, we have to give them more structure. We have to give them more help because in order to be a fully, like, functioning, contributing member of society, I guess, if you want to talk about it that way, like, you need to have help right. to get to that point. It yeah. Like, it's not something where you can just be thrown out. And, like, yeah, you can figure it out. Yes, you absolutely can. But it's so much harder. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't need to be as hard as it is in yeah. those circumstances, and that's really hard. That that's what it was for you. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because um, my 
publisher is a, a really great woman named Echo Garrett. And um, she started uh, with her son. She founded Lucid House Publishing. And one of the books that she wrote 20 years ago is a book called The Orange Duffel Bag. And um, it's all about, it's it basically was based, following the, the, the story of a young man who'd been in foster care and what happened to him afterwards. And the whole, and she started a, a founded an initiative with that, which is all about uh, providing aftercare and follow up and support for kids in foster in the foster system. So it's just, it's kind of interesting that um, you know she, she ended up being my publisher and uh, I'm now my friend. And she keeps referring to me as a foster child. I got, like I, it's funny to me because I never thought of myself that way. I, you know, it's kind of like I don't really fit that that box, but I guess I was in a way. But um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that is just crazy. So how did you like? How did you get to where you are now? Well, you got to read my memoir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in fact, when I when I well when I write my when I remember, I, I tell it through a, a series of relationships because really I see my life that way. That I I was very very much um, influenced by people that came into my life at certain points, and um, one of the people who came into my life um, was um, my first great love, a man named Jack, and. I actually met him when I was still living at the girls' home, and um, he was eight years older than than I was, and and um, but we just really hit it off as, on a friendship basis, and mm-hmm. we're friends for quite a, quite a few years before we eventually fell in love. I was a little older then, and it was a little bit more appropriate. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, um, and um, he was someone that I I just admired him and loved him and looked up to him so much. And um, when we fell in love, I was, I was turning 20, I was 20, he was, I guess, 28. And um, having him choose me and love me and know me so well, because I felt like he, he'd known me for such a long time and knew all my cracks and weaknesses and insecurities or whatever, that relationship had the most profound healing effect on me. In fact, that relationship gave me the courage to go back and initiate contact with my parents again because I felt again to use the word validated again I, I just felt so validated by his love and by his esteem of me mm-hmm. um, but then what, the story that I tell in my memoir is is uh, how he shortly after we got within two years of getting together he died of cancer oh. so um, so it was the biggest love of my life and the biggest loss of my life kind of all rolled into one and um, before he died he and I had been set off on this bicycle odyssey we were riding our goal was to ride to south america and uh, wow. we we rode several thousand miles and got as far as um almost to florida and um his can he had had cancer before and it came back and then that ended our trip and then five months later he he died but after he died um i had no plan b like he was he was my entire life and our plans for the future were my entire life i had no fallback plan and um, what happened was I came across a, one of the, a road map that he had used for a bicycle trip years before where he'd been riding from Phoenix, Arizona, where he was from, up to Alberta, where I'm from. It was kind of a straight line. And he'd gone as far as um, Colorado on that trip, and then he'd fallen sick with hepatitis and had to stop that trip. And so I found this road map, and I thought this was like within a week of him dying, and I thought, okay, what I need to do is finish this road trip, this bike trip for him. So I got on my bike and started riding to, to kind of complete this this trip. 
um, ended up not even getting to color. Like I got sidetracked, ended up going to the West Coast instead, and down to California and across the de- all over the place. Mm-hmm. That's kind of this, the wild story I tell in my memoir. Just this 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 long bicycle trip that ends up taking me all over the place and um, in and out of different subsequent relationships. But it was a really amazing experience because it showed me what I was capable of doing on my own. Yeah, just kind of got me moving in my life again and led to some of the biggest answers that I found in my life, which were spiritual answers that I was searching for. So that's kind of the story in a nutshell. That's really what my first memoir is all about, that whole journey. So, yeah. Oh, that is... Well, first I want to say I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, cancer just... Hmm. I know a lot of people who have died from cancer and it has run rampant in my family and like just cancer is hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a really, really hard thing to deal with. Yeah. But also what a beautiful story of, you know, I'm going to finish, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to finish his journey. I'm going to finish this. Mm -hmm. And even if that's not where you ended up, because you said you got sidetracked and you yeah. went elsewhere. Yeah. Like, I think that's so beautiful mm-hmm. is you were just like, okay, hey, I'm going to finish this journey. But it wasn't like his, his plan wasn't necessarily what you were supposed to do. Right. But right. you, but you wanted to do something like you needed to start somewhere. Right. And that is what led you, led you on the journey that you went on where you, it seems like, grew and had wonderful, beautiful, I'm sure very difficult experiences Yeah, to get where you are now. And I just think that's honestly so beautiful is you did something. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so grateful that I did. Like I, I wouldn't, well, it's funny. <laughs> I wouldn't change anything. It's funny because, um, you know, one thing I, one thing I inadvertently did with I think there was so much good came out of doing that. The thing that didn't happen though, is that I didn't properly grieve him because um, by getting back on the road so soon and, and immersing myself into every day's, you know, when you're, when you're traveling, it's like, you're just in the moment, right? Every day's mm-hmm. um, you're not really sitting around thinking about the past very much. You're just um, dealing with what's present and so on. And, and so I thought I was grieving him, but I wasn't really ready to go there. I couldn't, couldn't deal with the depth of pain. So what happened was I, pushed the grief underground and my life went forward, but the grief stayed there for a long, long time. And then it wasn't until literally it was like 20 years later that the grief kind of broke through the surface again. And it was the most profound thing because I felt like by this time I'm in my forties and I'm married and I've got kids and I'm in the full-time Christian ministry and I'm extremely, you know, busy, busy, busy. And um, this grief came back and I felt as if he had just died. I felt as if I was just at that point where I where I was having to cope with it. And it was the worst possible timing to try to process grief so much later in life. It's really difficult. That's what my whole second memoir is actually about, was that second stage of the journey. So people say like, would you, know, would you recommend doing what I did after losing the love of your life? I would hesitate to say yes, because you do have to deal with your grief. I think that has actually come up so many times on this podcast. Is that right? Yes. If you don't, like, you have to deal with your grief at one point or another. 
That's right. Your body, your, you, like you are going to have to deal with your grief at one point because it's going to bubble out at some point if you don't deal with it. Yeah. And the longer you push it down, the more difficult it ends up being in the long run. Yeah. When you do have to confront it. You're totally right. And I think what I, you know, I almost picture it like it's like this underground reservoir and it's just, it collects, it starts sucking in every other subsequent grief because you haven't dealt with the core grief. It's, it's bringing in all the other griefs that happen to you as, and losses as you, as you're going forward in life. And then it becomes like a tsunami. It was just, it was, you know, I, it was the most intense stage of my life by far. And that process was several years to, to get through that. It didn't, wasn't just like, okay, I'll deal with my grief now and take a couple months. It just went on and on and on because yeah. I had so much to deal with. And that's really when I started processing the stuff about my mother and my father, because I didn't, hadn't really grasped how much that loss, the loss that, that I experienced from their parenting contributed to my grief as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, it was, it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. actually really kind of love this, this thought of like, there's a core grief mm-hmm. and if you don't deal with it, it just piles like everything else just kind of comes into it. Yeah. I think there is so much truth to that. If we yeah. don't get to the root the core of what the problem is or what the hurt is, what the pain is, whatever it is, if you don't get to the core of it, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger because it yeah. starts to envelop so many other things. Yeah. And it makes sense that that wouldn't just be a few month process to get over, but it would take years and so much time and effort and pain mm-hmm. and tears and like so much to get through it if you just let it sit there yeah whereas if you deal with grief as it comes it as it comes to you mm-hmm. it's more easy to deal with right right yeah. I'm so glad you did eventually get through it though <laughs> me too yeah I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't have stayed in that place of pain forever so I had to I had to yeah get out yeah but yeah so it's yeah, been quite the journey I'm just thinking about all of these things. Like you've been through a lot. Hmm. And yeah. And I'm, I'm not even sharing a lot of other stuff I'm not even telling Oh, you. I'm sure. Like, I know. I'm like, I'm, you're just really scratching the surface. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I wish we could talk for so much longer, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to narrow it down to like just a couple questions that I want to ask. Sure. So when you went on this, you know, you were going to finish this path that he had started, yeah, right? And but it didn't. What was one of the things that kind of helped you keep going with it? Because it's not like there was anyone there pushing you, saying you have right. to do this. You, right. you know, like, what was one of the things that just kind of helped pushing you through, push you through it all? Again, I share this in my memoir about one of the when I when I thought about doing it by like writing by myself, I was really terrified. And I remember writing a list of my fears, bears, bears, at, at, you know, I was camping alone in the woods, right, the whole time. So bears was at the top of my list for sure. But I had fears about, you know, I didn't I didn't know the first thing about bike mechanics because he did all of that. I hadn't done the navigating. He did all of that. You know, he was a very, he was extremely positive, happy, fun person to be with. So like he kept my mood up and, you know, it was like, yeah. but I try to picture doing all this without all the things, all the benefit of having him with me. It was like very overwhelming. And um, so I wrote this list of fears and told myself that 
I had to stay on this trip for two weeks. Like no matter what happened, I had to persevere for two weeks. But if after two weeks I was really miserable, I would give myself the grace to to stop. So I set off on that. And then what happened was like pretty much almost every fear that I had listed surfaced within the first 10 days oh and I had to deal with all of it. And, um, and I did. And then after, after that happened, it was kind of like, then it became really fun. And then I just kind of fell in love with this adventure that I was on and, and not knowing where I'd be from day to day and um, meeting people along the way. And yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't hard to keep going that way. It was basically, I, I didn't want to quit. Okay, there is so much in this that I love. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think that this is something that so many people can do when they're struggling with something or when they're afraid to do it is just write down what your biggest fears are mm-hmm. and just kind of keep going. Right. It's something that like, it's one of the ways I have continued to do this podcast and get guests and even get guests that I didn't think would ever actually say yes to being on. <laughs> I was like, they'll never be on my podcast. And I had to be like, well, I mean, they're never going to be on if I never ask them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but I had to like write down, I'm like, okay, what, but what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. And it's you, for me, like for those things, it was like, well, they say no. Yeah. Or I never hear back from them. Yeah. And I was like, well, if that's the worst that can happen, then go for why it. Am I, why am I not doing it? Yeah. yeah. It, it, like your experience was very different when you're putting bears and stuff into the mix. Like that's, that's a slightly different story. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but I think that there's so much that can really be in that is just like writing down the biggest fears that are possibly holding you back from something Mm -hmm. and then just going full on with those things. If this happens, then what will, then what will I do? If this happens, then what will I do? And just, just do it. Mm -hmm. I, I think that there's so much to, to realizing what those fears are and then charging forward. Yeah. Yeah, because I think so much of the time we end up being surprised at what we can actually do mm-hmm. if we just do it. Yeah, you're totally right. Oh, love it so much. Well, we're about out of time, but I want to ask you one more question. Sure. What advice, I guess, would you give to someone who is realizing that they have a lot of grief? that they need to deal with. What advice would you give to them um, as they're starting on this? Yeah, there's the, 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 the biggest tool that helped me. And again, I share this in my second memoir. So I'm giving you a sneak preview here, but there's a book called the grief recovery handbook. It costs about $20 it's a skinny little book. It's been around for about 20 years, I think. And when it finally came into, came my way when I was in the throes of my grief work, Nothing was working and I was, I had tons of counseling and I was, I was journaling and weeping and whatever. And um, this book came my way and it's a very simple system that they outline that you, you can go through. You just need to find another person that wants to go through the process with their own stuff at the same time. So you can share with them mm-hmm. and it's, um, it's profoundly effective. And I say this as somebody who tried a lot of other things before I found this and nothing really got to the heart of what I was trying to excavate, I guess. So I would say, get that book. It's, it's amazing. And you have to, you can't just read the book. You have to do the steps and exactly the way the book tells you to, but it's, you know, it's amazing. Like I I really feel like it, it was the, 
one of the biggest keys to to my healing. Marilyn, thank you so much for being on. This, this has been so great good. talking to you. Yeah, I wish we could just sit and talk all afternoon. I know, right? <laughs> so before we close, I'd love for you to tell people again um, your name, your website, where they can buy your books, and the titles of your books again. Okay, so my name is Marilyn Crete, K-R-I-E-T-E, and my website is MarilynCrete.com. So if you just Google my name, that should come up right away. And my book is on there. My first one is called Paradise Road, a memoir. And it's for sale, lots of different outlets, including Amazon and through my website. And my second memoir, which discusses, which goes through some of the the grief work that I talked about here today, is called The Box Must Be Empty. And that is scheduled to be published early 2022. So, oh, that's yeah. so exciting. So, yeah. And then I have two more memoirs. One's already, another one already written, which is about two years that we spent in India back in the 80s. And um, yeah, the, my experience there. And then my fourth memoir, which is in progress right now, is about um, six years that we lived in Africa. So, Ooh. yeah. So, lots of stories. And yeah. obviously, I love yeah. stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I will also put links in the show notes for people. So that way you can easily find things as well there. Thank you. Marilyn, thank you. This was lovely. I feel the same way. Thank you. Have a great rest of your Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for a preview from next week. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. There's a lot going on in the world right now. I regularly feel myself getting overwhelmed with it all. Remind yourself to take a step back take a breath, turn off the news, close out of Facebook or TikTok or whatever have you, take some time for you and remember to breathe. You can check out the show notes at scarsweshare.com slash podcast slash episode 094. I had explosive emotional chaos all the time that wasn't ever mine, (laughs) right? So it was, there's uh, no availability on that parent's end.